0: ever got other fingers still from the Fourth of July yeah. all right just checking I got a new band-aid it's not from that I'm not gonna tell you what it's for it's a long story it's very painful and I would make all of you cringe what I did this time but um, it's but it's got an operation sticker see you know <laughs> you're the operation game I should do the I should do the band-aid of the week because I always hurt something it's like today my band-aid is operation <laughs> Kind of thing um, so, Uh, Last week, Jonathan, one of our elders, uh, sent this out to his GC and also out to the other elders. And and it was so good, I thought I wanted to read it to you about the 4th of July. So uh, he says, Happy 4th of July. Today is the 237th anniversary of America's independence. We are often called a young country among nations, but it's worth noting that we have the longest enduring constitution in the world. Ratified on September 17, 1787, there is no other document authored by humans that so guarantees the rights of men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every military officer takes an oath on the day of their commissioning not to defend the people of the United States, not to defend or obey the President, but to defend the Constitution of the United States. Here is the reason. People are fickle, and history tells us that they will willingly sell their freedom for comfort and security. Presidents can become tyrants, and no army should owe one man their allegiance. But the Constitution is an ideal—the ideal that all men are created equal, and they have inalienable rights guaranteed to them by their Creator. That is something worth fighting and dying for. In fact, over 1.5 million American soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen have died for that ideal in around 260 wars and military actions throughout the globe in the last 237 years. As awe-inspiring as this sacrifice has been, it can ne- never truly guarantee freedom for men and women. It is only. The sacrifice of God himself that guarantees our freedom john 8 to 36 jesus answered them truly i say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin the slave does not remain in the house forever the son remains forever so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed jesus is the guarantor of our freedom and the author of liberty this fourth of july as i salute our flag and thank god for the constitution that is beholden to him alone i will remember that though i live in a free country i was a slave until jesus set me free I know. that. That's why he's an elder. <laughs> he writes much better than the rest of us. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Uh, one thing um, as we get going here is on uh, July 17th, which is my birthday, by the way, so it d- doesn't mean anything for you. But, yay. Okay. Give me a birthday present and show up to this thing. Uh, <laughs> On July 17th at 6 p.m., we have Arrow Family Services coming. And they are going to be doing a little thing about what foster care is and, and what it means and what it entails. And if you have any questions, just by coming doesn't mean you're obligated. They're just going to tell you what it's about. And maybe you've been thinking about certain things you can do, opening your home in that regard. There's a lot of kids in our community that could really use uh, some good godly homes to live in. So if you're interested and want more information, 6 p.m., July 17th, here at Element, just show up, and she's going to do a little presentation for us, and you can ask any questions you might have. Now, uh, we, our next new series is called The Stupid Summer. It will start in two weeks. Yes, after finally 73 weeks of Genesis, we do have something else to talk about. So, uh, here is our second promo for that. Yeah! You can thank James and uh, James uh Haley and Mikey for all those they, they keep putting them together, so it's it's pretty cool. And I gotta tell you, to get a kid to talk into a mic is frustrating. It's like <laughs> seriously, it's like twenty hours of audio just to get these little clips you're hearing. It's like, ah, stop chewing gum, stop looking out the window. Tell us about Jesus. Okay. I mean, seriously, that, that's what it's like. It's like uh, welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new, you don't own a Bible. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. You have a smartphone. You can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on Live in Uversion. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get all the sermon notes and the verses that go along that we talk about this morning. Want you stand with me reading God's Word. And if you did download the U version, what you're going to open up, it's going to be a different verse that I'm starting with because I was in my quiet time this morning, yes, before I even came here. And uh, this verse just stood out to me about how much of what we're talking about this morning, so I thought I'd use this one instead. This is first Timothy three sixteen. It says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who is incredible, a God who has saved us and brought us to a place of freedom. And I ask that we would understand what you have been doing from the very beginning through our lives and what you will continue to do throughout the course of eternity because you are so good. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Genesis week 72. We have one left after this week and today is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to try and I mean that loosely try to kind of tie this all this together uh, this week and next week on my rounding out of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to be really kind of over the place today, but I'll bring it together in the end. You're going to be impressed because I'm a professional. You'll dig it. It's it's, it's great. (laughs) Uh, if, you, if you're here all the way in Genesis 1 in the first few weeks of that, this is going to resonate a bit with you because you'll be like, oh, I remember some of this stuff as we put it uh, together. I actually debated whether to do this week, next week, and next week, this week, but it kind of went out the way that it is, so we're going to hit the end of Genesis, and then we'll start walking. So uh, Genesis 50, open your Bibles there. There's really almost too much to recap at this point. If you are new, you've got 71 weeks. It's all free. It's all online. Get what you pay for, but it's there. You can listen to it. Uh, Essentially, today, Joseph comes to the end of his life. Joseph, in the scriptures, is one of the most righteous guys that ever lived after some stumbling in his adolescence. Genesis chapter 50, verse 22, starts like this. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children. That is his son of the third generation. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So Joseph gets blessed, Joseph has a family, he is the portrait of an old man with his great-grandkids and his grandkids sitting around him. They love God, they love each other. You know you are blessed when you are 110 years old and your family loves Jesus and they actually like each other. Okay, So that, that's a huge blessing. And this is the goal and the idea we should look for in our lives. If you don't have a goal, you will hit it every time. Right so you need to set a good goal and this is a good one to set it is it is Jesus family loving each other great goal our culture today tries to get you to believe that you know your ideal goal would be if you're a guy to be Hugh Hefner 80 years old living in your PJs bunch of young chicks who can't read and pump full of plastic hanging out around you all day That is not the ideal. That is an ideal of sin. Joseph is a man with no regrets. He has lived a full life. He has loved those who didn't like him, forgave those who sinned against him. He has served those around him. He cared for those no one else would care for. He is not bitter. He didn't hold grudges. He left it all in God's hands to deal with. Verse 24 So Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, that's his great grandfather, to Isaac, that's his grandfather, To Jacob his father. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry up my bones from here. It's like I'm gonna die. God's gonna bring you out of Egypt. When he does, take me with you. And they actually do that in the book of Exodus. Verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He gets buried in an Egyptian way. He looked Egyptian, which will also tell you it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters where your faith is. A lot of people today get so hung up on what Christians are supposed to look like. I know a guy whose son is living in this place and and in order to go visit his son, he has to wear a suit because Christians wear suits. I know other people who think that Christians need to wear, you know, t-shirts that have jesus slogans on them and i'm like if i wear boxers does that count you know and you know how does it all work you know what does a christian actually look like have people ask me that and i will tell you i don't know what a christian's supposed to look like and what you're supposed to dress i didn't get the download from heaven i'll tell you what the scriptures tell you okay the scriptures tell you that you're supposed to wear something that fits and cover your baby making parts that's about it okay (laughs) other than that you know have fun Uh, You look at Joseph. He was a good missionary because he looked Egyptian. They could relate to him, but he loved Jesus and displayed his faith in everything that he did. And this is the ending. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That is Genesis, and it's kind of anticlimactic because there's a dead guy in a box at the end of Genesis. You expect like a fireworks show or a gunfight or a car chase or a boss battle or something, but there's not. It opens in the garden, it ends with the funeral, it seems like it goes downhill. And the, and the answer to that is, it did go downhill. Why? Sin, exactly. That's why it went downhill. If you were to take all the passages about sin out of the Bible, you would end up with a four-chapter pamphlet. You would have Genesis 1 and 2, which is about a garden, Revelation 21 and 22, which is about a city, the gathering of gardens. Scripture, it is progression. It is movement. It is going somewhere. If sin had never entered the world, there would have been a proliferation of gardens which eventually would connect and become a city. Genesis 1 and 2 is where everything starts. Genesis 1, 28, and God said to them, that's the first people, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are told part of created order is that we are to have dominion. Dominion means to rule. It's the Hebrew word radah. Everybody say radah. 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 And then the word subdue, it's the Hebrew word kabash. Everybody say kabash. Kabosh is a good word because it's like a wrestling term. You know, I'm going to give you the kabosh. I'm going to knock you down. Now, you could translate these words in scripture as responsibility and stewardship. So God takes these people and He says, okay, I have made all this. Now you make things. Create things out of all the things I just created. And so if you like to landscape, then go out and landscape. If you like playing music, then play music. If you like sculpting, then make sculptures. If you like poetry, then poet. I don't know if that's how it works. If you like construction, then make things. If you like cars, then pull them apart and stick them back together and just do it all the time. It's about building. It's about taking creation somewhere. That's what it was meant to be. This is why the Garden of Eden wasn't perfect. It was good. God constantly calls it good because you're supposed to take it and use it and further his culture of life and hope. But then you hit Genesis chapter 3, you get introduced to one of the major themes throughout Genesis and all the scriptures, and this is called sin. God created man to live in shalom, that is God's peace, how God intended for things to be. This is within the boundaries God created them for. There is harmony in that hierarchy of God, creation, God, people, creation. And if and if all of a sudden creation tries to put itself above God, it doesn't work. This is why hyper-environmentalism never works. It destroys what God created things to be. If people put themselves above God, it destroys the order, and we start to destroy each other because God needs to be first. In Genesis 3, there's a picture of a tree where if they eat from this certain tree in this garden, they'll be exploring outside the boundaries that they were created to live within. And so what do they do? That almost immediately they eat from this tree and they experience a disruption in the peace and the shalom of God. Sin enters the world. Before God would come walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they'd be like, Yay! God's here! Yay! Right? Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, before you should be, hey, God's here. Now it's like, oh, my goodness, we better hide ourselves. We're naked, and God doesn't want to see our nakedness. Now here's the question. Does the creator of the universe have trouble finding naked people in the woods? No. So when God says, where are you, what is he actually saying? What he's actually saying is, where are you now? You weren't satisfied with the world I put you in, and so you decided to create a culture of death. You were not okay with me being God and you being creation. So where are you now? Are you pleased with this decision? We call this the fall or the entrance of sin. And I'll give you four things that sin is. Sin is the disruption of God's shalom. It's the disruption of his peace. We are created at peace with God, peace with each other, peace with creation, even peace within ourselves. And most of us never really feel peace within ourselves. Sin is all the ways that God intends for us to live, and yet we step outside of that and destroy that peace. Sin is also rebellion, where we don't like the way God sets things up, so we rebel against His order, the way He has done things. We rebel against the world that He has made and the way that He has made it, and we begin to destroy it in the process and then try to recreate it in our own image. Sin is a participation in the way of death. Sin is when we try and steer things in the opposite direction of how God intends for them to go. This could be as an individual. This could be as a family. This could be as a government. This could be globally. And sin is also missing the mark. In archery, sin is literally a term that you miss what you're aiming at. Okay? So you have to ask how have we violated God's peace? How have we sinned? How in our own lives do we continue to do that? Because God set things up a certain way, and how do we individually continue to do that and then as a culture continue to do that? We must be honest about those things. When you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you realize it is active, it is not static. And when you get to the person of Joseph, he seems to be one of the few people that actually radah and kiboshes and begins to live in this harmony that God has set up. The reflection of this creation of Genesis 1 and 2. You see this because when Joseph takes over an entire country, everybody is fed. Now today, we have one billion people every day that go to bed hungry because we are not radah and kiboshing correctly. There is enough food to feed Everybody. As a matter of fact, statistics tell you, even just in America, America could produce enough food to feed everybody in the world. But we're not radahing and kiboshing correctly. And so what you see is that Joseph begins to do it right. He begins to uh, radah and kibosh and put everything together. It's like, yes, it's so wonderful, but what happens at the end of his life? He ends in a box. Dead. Why? Sin. Exactly. Exactly. Now, fast forward to the book of Revelation. Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. If you don't have any, like, notes in the back, it's going to be, like, the last chapter, last page. Boom, you're right there. It's easy to find. Trust me, okay? Now, what you have to realize is the Genesis story doesn't end in chapter 3. It doesn't end in chapter 50, okay? This whole story doesn't end there. You go to Genesis, uh, Revelation 22, verse 5, and this is what it tells you in Revelation 22, verse 5. End of the book. It says, And night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, but for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now the word rain there is the is the word beseluo. Everybody say beseluo. You're not going to remember it, I know, but you said it, so now I feel better. Okay, and what this literally means is to uh, exercise influence or to participate with. That's what that word means. And this is the one of the amazing things about how Revelation mirrors the book of Genesis. We are told in Revelation there's going to be trees and a river and fruit and healing of the nations and proper relationships and all of that, and they will be saluo. We'll participate with God forever and ever. People will truly work with God, stewarding, participating in, guiding creation. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Genesis one and two, because that is what God intended from the very beginning. The story starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation, but Hebrew storytelling doesn't go beginning-middle-middle-end. It goes beginning-middle-beginning, beginning. and this is why we are ending in the beginning. God restoring, taking everything back to the how it was meant to be. So in the midst of all this, we always talk about Jesus. So how does the story of truth end up being about Jesus? In order to get that, you have to understand how the writers of the New Testament begin to relate all of these things to the person of Christ. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Jewish writers, they will plant multiple things on multiple levels throughout their writing. A prized Jewish ability was to tell a story in a way that relates as much Jewish history as possible. And so you get to the writers of the gospel accounts and telling their stories. They are also telling many more stories within their stories. And so if you begin to understand, you're like, wow, this really opens up. Matthew has tons and tons of Hebrew idioms throughout his gospel. It's like all around the edges, all the story. there's even more going on. So I'll show you this in Genesis Revelation, Jesus at the center of it all. In John chapter 2, Jesus does his very first miracle. He takes 180 gallons of water. He turns them into 180 gallons of wine. Awesome. Okay. What a miracle. It is a a seven-day wedding. At the end of it, the wine starts running out. People are losing their buzz. What does Jesus do? makes 180 gallons of wine. Wow. Okay? We can talk about that at some point if you want to, about all the ramifications of it. But, suffice to say, it's a pretty good miracle as far as miracles go. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, did this happen? I believe it totally happened. But what John does is he talks about this new wine. When the Messiah comes, Messiah is going to be bringing new wine. Wine was this picture the Hebrew prophets spoke about of the blessing of God, of the new world. It is very Genesis 1 and 2-y. It is very Revelation-y. It is very all the prophets of the Old Testament talking about this. Open to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54, Jesus goes and he heals an official's son. This guy is sick. Jesus heals his son. And in John 4, verse 54, it says this. Now, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So John adds that to the story about the healing for a purpose. And I hope you're instantly thinking, oh, is there a third sign? Is that somewhere in the book of John or something? And when Jesus does a miracle, you have to get that it's about how God intends for things to be. No sickness, no disease. And so what he is doing in a healing is showing how things are meant to be and will be in eternity. A miracle is not an invasion of another world. A miracle is a return to the reality of Genesis 1 and 2. So you go on, you keep looking for other signs. Are there more? John 5, it starts off with a healing at a pool. A lame man at a pool, Jesus heals him. Third sign, go to chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's another good miracle, by the way, in case you were wondering. Fourth sign. Then the next thing happens is Jesus walks on water. Bravo. You ever tried it? (laughs) Boom. You go right in. You know, there you go. He shows his command of creation. Number five. Then there's a speech. Some people desert Jesus, then a feast, and some division, then some unbelief, then a dispute. And the next sign comes in John chapter 9. And Jesus heals a man born blind sixth sign then there's a speech some conflict then chapter 11 a guy named lazarus dies in john chapter 11 verse 43 when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice lazarus come out the man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth jesus said to them unbind him and let him go in john that'd be number seven miracle number seven you know how many miracles in the book of john eight okay but here, number seven, right there, Jesus raised the guy from the dead, seventh sign. Now you have to understand, John wrote his gospel last. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are probably in wide circulation at this point, and so John wants to get a point across. His thing is always, Jesus is God, he is the Messiah. What's the Messiah going to do? The Messiah is going to heal the blind. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to bring new wine. He's going to raise people from the dead. He's going to have command of creation and nature. All these signs that you see Jesus doing. Now after this one right here, you have chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, no signs. In chapter 18, Jesus is arrested, put on trial, convicted, crucified. It seems to John that once Jesus raises someone from the dead, if you don't believe, well, you're not. You know, and seriously, you know, more wine might be awesome, but it's not going to help at this point. And so if you go back to the book of Genesis, does a number seven come up anywhere? H- hello? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. 72 weeks later, people, all right? Yes, you got Genesis 1 and 2, huge creation poem right there. It's a giant seven. So what might John be saying? Because again, uh, Lazarus raised from the dead is not the last miracle. The last thing John wants you to see is Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead. Joseph ends in a box. Jesus resurrects from the grave. And so what might, and I emphasize might, because, again, this is partly my speculation, And a couple commentators that I read talking about this, but I really think because of who John is and when he wrote and why he wrote and the things that he pointed to, this is what he is doing. I think Jesus does a miracle for each day of creation, and then Jesus dies. And then you have the next miracle, which is resurrection from the dead, which is Sunday, the first day of a new week. He resurrects from the dead. He inaugurates not an old creation, but the Sunday of a brand new creation. Because resurrection is the story of a whole new creation. It's not about death. It's not about a box. It's about resurrection and life. And where does he resurrect? In a garden. In a garden. John chapter 20, verse 15. He's mistaken for the gardener, which I think is very poetic and very amazing. And I think what John is saying is a few things. I think it's three things. Number one, I think he's showing that Jesus' resurrection shows a new creation that is going on right now in the midst of this one. It is a present and a future reality. I think secondly, the story of Jesus' resurrection is a story about God reaffirming the good of his creation. It is not about God destroying it. It is about God redeeming it. God does not beam people up like Star Trek to another realm. He comes down in the midst of this creation. He takes death and corruption to the grave and he leaves it there and he announces all things are now new. Joseph ends in a box. You are offered eternal life. I think he says this world was good when I made it and it is still good. You have to understand nowhere in the scriptures are material things declared bad ever, ever, ever. Even the fruit and the tree that Adam and Eve ate from in the garden, it was a good tree, it was good fruit. Their sin was bad. And the story of Genesis centers on God's glory and human rebellion. But what happens is that throughout the ages, religious traditions have come along and confused rebellion with material reality. And because humans have rebuilt, we think, well, all creation is just dark and and horrible. And so we have this view that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. So we work to separate those things all the time. You have people who are monks who go to live on hills away from everybody else. And, oh, they're really spiritual because they're not really involved with anybody and they're just seeking God in in the midst of that. But Jesus' resurrection, it is physical. He rises physically from the dead to tell you that the physical and the spiritual are both good. And the third thing is that the story is part of anticipating and waiting for heaven and earth to be not reunited again where God brings these two things together again. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Now, first thing center of the Christian faith always Jesus, always Jesus. I had a couple conversations this week with a couple people who they made different issues their issue and it wasn't Jesus. It drove me crazy. They're nut jobs. Okay? It is always about Jesus. If you have one issue that you latch onto that is not Jesus, you have missed the point of the scriptures. It is Jesus, central point. But in that, you know the beginning from the ending and that massive disruption in the middle called sin. Now, does that idea of sin affect how Jesus says and does things? Of course it does. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus says this. It says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world. And that's Matthew. And it's a very Hebrew way of saying at the renewal, at the redemption. A new world wasn't I'm going to destroy everything here. It's I am redeeming. I am remaking. That's how Jews would think of that. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Keep that in the back of your mind, this whole idea of renewal. Open to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Here you got a guy named Peter. We call him the rock. Got funky eyebrows. Kind of does a thing, you know. the rock. And he gives a speech about how the Messiah is going to come, and he has rescued people from the way of death, from the fall. Acts 3.21. It's in the middle of this speech, and Peter says this in the middle of it. Heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Keep going to the right. Right? Paul in Colossians 1 is talking about the cross and what was happening, how it's more than a rabbi being killed, that it's cosmic in its scope, as wide as the universe and as epic. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And all things translates as, all things you're welcome whether on heaven or or on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross so the cross the resurrection is an act on god's part to bring reconciliation to all things so jesus talks of renewal peter talks about restoration paul talks about reconciliation of all things the story again is about a god trying to put it all back together again starts in Genesis 1 and 2 ends in Revelation 21 and 22 and the center of the whole thing is Jesus right in the, in the middle. And if you understand Jesus in the middle of it all, it all begins to make more sense. So how practically does this mean we live out our lives? How what, what practically does that mean for you and I? Well, let's take something as mundane as business. Okay, business. Genesis 1 and 2. It is about proper stewardship and hierarchy and harmony. Then what is business? Business is providing a goods or a service at fair price so people get their needs met. It's an exchange of goods for services for the betterment of the common good. You're taking what the earth created, you are redistribu- redistributing it is a genesis 1 and 2 thing and it is a wonderful thing if you start in genesis 3 then business people and people who have jobs start to feel really bad about themselves they start to say well i'm second class i'm not a pastor i'm just a worker in a field or i'm just a plumber i'm just a welder i'm just a tattoo artist i'm just a farmer i'm just all these things and oh well you know i guess i'm really not that spiritual i'll just make some money and give to spiritual things See, but if the story starts in Genesis 1 and 2, then your work already is holy because you are working. And God intends you to work, and you are doing what he calls you to do, and your work is already profound. It's amazing. Destructive messages are sent when we start in Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1 and 2. You have to understand, I think today our government has a Genesis 3 view of business I think it thinks business is bad and it's a necessary evil. It's not a necessary evil. It is a good thing. And if you have a job, if you own a business, my goodness, that is a holy and profound thing that you are doing. How about art? You know, if creation is producing, creation is growing, we should then creatively begin to organize this and shape it to bring dimension and shape. So art is capturing these things and putting them together in a way that brings joy and hope. We get to be co-creators. It's, it's wonderful. Genesis 1 and 2, that impulse is always blessed in people. Now, today, yes, we create things that don't reflect the shalom of God. We steer it in horrible directions. But the primal impulse to create is placed in us by God. It's a good thing. And this is why I have a problem when we look at art and music and books and we just throw a black and white label on things like, oh, that's Christian and that's non-Christian. That always fails because this label, is, it, it doesn't make sense. Because if you've got to label something to validate something, you already missed the point. We're trying to validate something and bless something that God already has. He is better at it than we are. We should leave that in His hands. This is sometimes for me, and, and this drives Christians nuts about me, I know, but, but I have a really huge problem with the Christian subculture of music and coffee and coffee cups and stickers and pastel paintings of houses in the woods. It's confusing. Because we will start to label some things as Christians. As, oh, this is Christian. Oh, and, and, and it's not. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't reflect God's holiness. And we label things as non-Christians. Sometimes it actually home with holiness and life. And we have to be careful what we do. Like people say things like, uh, you know, are they a Christian band? Or is, or is that a Christian movie? Or is that a Christian book? Well, I don't know. Is it horrible? <laughs> have you seen Christian movies? Come on. That whole question, it comes out of Genesis chapter 3, not Genesis 1 and 2. Is it Christian or is it non-Christian? What's our label? Do you know what the better question is? Does it reflect the harmony of God's peace? Is this about the shalom of God? Does this bring what God intends to the world? So I would say in the Christian subculture, stop feeding the bears. Justice, okay? How about justice? Okay, um, justice on its very basic level is the proper and ordering of God's world. That's what justice is. And that brings about you know, protection of people, its laws, its all these things. But I'll tell you, it also comes down to things like today where a billion people don't have clean drinking water on our planet. It comes down to a literacy rate starting to go up, that food's not distributed correctly. If you have a longing deep inside of you for things to be right, that is a Genesis 1 and 2 longing. You have to understand that our message is first and foremost, Jesus is the one true God. He has come in human flesh to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to God. And we must be about the truth of him in our lives. That is our message. But our message is also, are you hungry? Are you hungry? Well, here's some food. Are you thirsty? Here's some water. You can't read? Well, let me help. Why do we do those things? Because we understand Genesis 1 and 2 and that Jesus is the one true God that Genesis always pointed towards. He has come in human flesh to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to God, and has sent us to bring His kingdom to this earth by how we live and glorify Him. That is what it is. We we live like Him and we speak to the spiritual but also the physical. So, the gospel is what we say and do. And I believe a Christian is a myriad of things. I think a Christian is someone who understands Genesis and the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and then also understands it all points to Jesus and he is right here today in the midst of all of us and anyone can be part of it when you surrender your life to him. I think a Christian is someone who sees God's new creation in their very own eyes as it begins to bust forth today. I think uh, uh, metaphorically speaking in our world of concrete God's flowers are still breaking through. I think a Christian is someone who has hope, and that hope is not rooted in escape. It is rooted in engagement. It is not about God taking us out of this place. It is God living in and through his people to do the midst of his work in this creation right now. Because through Jesus' resurrection, God is affirming his love for this creation. I think a Christian is someone who is not surprised when grace and beauty and meaning and order and compassion shows up in all sorts of unexpected places and unexpected people because it has always been God's world. It always will be God's world, period. See, that is ending in the beginning. And a Christian, first and foremost, is someone who has surrendered their heart and their lives to Jesus Christ so that these things start bursting forth in their lives. Genesis is the book of beginnings. The Bible is 66 books. It is written over 40 generations. It tells one story about one hero who is Jesus. I think the reason why Genesis ends on the downer is that in Genesis, Jesus hasn't come yet. It's just pointing to him. But Joseph knows he is coming. It's why he makes that statement, you shall carry up my bones from here, because he knows something, and that is surely the Lord is coming. And for you and I, Surely the Lord came. That is Jesus, born, lived, crucified, resurrected to inaugurate his new kingdom. And you and I now have the opportunity to serve and love this revealed Jesus in our lives. The one who was promised, the one that they all long to see. You now get to know. You now get to live for. You now get to have his power and his strength in your life. And so often, we treat it as something small. We treat it as like a bumper sticker or a T-shirt. And it's like, oh, you know, that's, that's Jesus. Yeah, he died for your sins. And, and we treat it so small like it, like it has no meaning anymore. And we must be a people who, you know, understanding after 70 plus weeks of Genesis that God wants you to have eyes that are remade for wonder, for what he is doing. And you look at this and you say, wow, this is a great gift God has given to all of us. We must live with a renewed vision of what God is doing in Christ, what God is doing in this creation, in the person of Christ, even today. That is ending in the beginning of what God intends for all of us to do. Now, this is, again, every week. Don't tune me out right here. Okay, this is why we talk about communion every week. All right, and so, oh, pull the Bible away. I think we're done now, you know. This is why we come to this. Because communion is about this renewed creation in Christ. That's why you break that cracker. It's like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It's like his blood that was shed for you and I. We remember what he has done there. It's not just something you do weekly because it sits here. It is something that is made to open your eyes week after week after week. Where we submit our entire lives at his feet. And he opens our eyes so we see what he is doing. And we begin to live and walk in his world in the way that he calls us to, where we begin bringing the restoration of the shalom of God, which is already given to us, and that we then give to other people around us. The band's going to come up do a couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, uh, maybe you have lived your life in such a way that you know, you're like, man, I've, I've never even really thought about the shalom and the peace of God, and that God has already redeemed me and restored me, and now he's calling me to live a different way, that God would open my eyes. I mean, Maybe you need that. Maybe you need the prayer that God would just simply open your eyes so you can see what he is already doing now, because our God is a God who has never stopped working. He has never stopped loving. He's never stopped seeking his children. He is gracious and good. There's offering boxes on the on in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving then is simply part of our worship. And so you're invited to do that every single week. And there's some food and stuff in the back. And I said this the last two services. And everybody writes me off and laughs when I say this. But I'll tell you food is good. Food tastes good. As I said a few weeks ago that, you know, God could have just made food taste like dog food and you just get a bowl once a day and that's what you eat. But he didn't do that. Every time you have a meal, every time you eat something, you go, my goodness, this is so good. That's made to open your eyes that God made you to eat. And every time you eat, it's like, wow, this tastes better than it has to. Because he is good. Because he is good. There are donut holes back there. Apparently, they're from the hand of God. Right, Ryan? Eyes remade for wonder. Everything that you begin to see can make you just stand back in awe of the goodness and the graciousness of God. And when you begin to live that way, your hope becomes infectious. People are like, man, what is wrong with you? It's like, because this cookie is amazing. You're weird. I drove here in a car. I didn't have to walk. I got shoes. I live in a house. My wife acts like she likes me. (laughs) You know, it's crazy. All the good things that if you would just look every day that God constantly gives to us to open our eyes so we realize how good He is. Live with a renewed vision of that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, ask that we would be those who honor, love, and glorify You by all that we say and all that we do, that our eyes would be opened again to see the newness of who you are. It seems like for a lot of us, you know, the day that we came to know you and surrendered our lives to you, it was like, oh, I was so excited. That's the best day of my life. And yet we forget that you intend for all of our days to be like that. Though sometimes we do go through struggles and we do go through trials and pain, that you give us so many good gifts that we should stand in amazement every single day. that you didn't just leave your creation fallen and broken. From eternity past, you made the decision of what exactly you were going to do and you did it. And you sent your son who spoke about not the destruction of everything, but the renewal of everything. And we as your people should do no different. We should be speaking about the renewal of all things. We should be understanding the harmony of your peace, the hierarchy that you are our God and we worship you first and foremost, and then we take care of the things around us because you've called us to Radan Kabash correctly. So have us live as a people who honor you not just with our lips, but honor you with all of our lives. That we can drop the labels and simply live lives that reflect your honor and glory in all of them. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. And today we ask that you would take our hearts and as we begin to search this world for all the new things that you are constantly doing and that we would live lives of hope and expectation. Because we truly see as you intend for us to see. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.